So, Asha, how bad were these Supreme Court decisions anyway? Uh, it's complicated. I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University and a legal contributor for ABC News. And I'm Renata Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. So, Asha, <laughs> we had a lot of Supreme Court decisions that came out at the very end. They were not surprises, I think, to most of to most of us who are paying attention, but they were very consequential. And thankfully for me, uh, you've already spent a lot of time explaining these on ABC News, so you can uh you can be the uh bear the or the the burden of of walking us through some of these decisions i mean i think the first one i mean maybe to start on a happy note was Moore versus harper right that was that was pretty consequential but in a in a very good way yeah yeah so i was basically strapped to my dining room chair last week <laughs> <laughs> like on tuesday and thursday and friday um felt like a soccer goalie, you know, waiting for which um, opinion was going to come down. But we knew, you know, we knew these big ones were left. They saved them till the end. Um, And yes, so the first one, let's just, I think let's take some time just to walk through these so that people understand what the issue was and what the court said. And then we can turn to why it's important and why it matters and what happens. All right. So, Moore versus Harper was the long-awaited decision on the so-called independent state legislature theory, ISL. So, and jump in, Renato, because, you know, I I was covering a lot of different stuff. So if you have um, clarifications, you know, please let me know. So the independent state legislature theory is based on the idea that the federal constitution give state legislatures the power to determine the time, place, and manner of elections. Right. So the the important context is the federal government does not run elections under the U.S. Constitution. They're run by states. Traditionally, that clause was interpreted to give that power to state governments. That's different than state legislatures because what it means is, for example, that state uh, state legislature would ultimately be subject to state law. The state the state supreme court would be able to regulate how state legislatures exercise that power, and so on. Right. So, but the but the federal constitution says state legislatures, and so the independent state legislature theory is that legislatures and only legislatures have the power to make all the rules concerning elections, and they can't be constrained in any other way, including by the constitution of that state. Um, that right. Essentially, that courts cannot review what they do, even if what the legislature does violates the law of the state. Um, it's basically like absolute power or that, for example, even the governor could not veto um, something that the state legislature determines uh, with regard to. So it's basically like in this area, the state legislature is all powerful. It's a pretty extreme theory. Um, and 
in the next segment, we'll get into the implications of it. But that's what was up uh, in front of the court. Right. I mean, and just that would mean, for example, um, I would believe a state law that that determined um, how electors are, are apportioned that said, for example, you have to have your state's electors go to the winner of the popular vote in that state. A state legislature could decide they want to go in a different direction. Right. So in this case, this involved um, a North Carolina partisan gerrymander. And the state Supreme Court, which at the time had a Democratic majority, so remember that at least in North Carolina, the state Supreme Court justices are elected, um, said that this gerrymander violated the state constitution, which guarantees free and fair elections. In other words, the state constitution uh, has a provision, that a free and fair election provision, and they felt that this partisan gerrymander um, violated that. Um, then, so the, it was at that point where it goes up to the Supreme Court. Then the composition of the state Supreme Court changes, and it becomes a Republican majority, and they reheard the case and threw out the old decision. And this becomes important for, I think, the dissent. Um, so anyway, back at the ranch, um, basically what, what the Supreme Court says, um, and this I believe, I don't have this right in front of me, but I believe it's um, Chief Justice Roberts writing this opinion, who says that, no, sorry, uh, state legislatures are subject to judicial review. And so they basically say that when the framers wrote the Constitution, they understood the concept of, of checks and balances. These were operating in the states. This is really giving the power to state governments. In other words, it's giving power to the legislature to the extent that it has power under its own Constitution. And the quote here is, when state legislatures make laws, they are bound by the provisions of the very document that gives them life. Um, and so it's a pretty, um, you know, it, it was a good little bench slap on this uh, independent state legislature theory. It, it reinforces this, this very basic principle of judicial review and the idea that uh, there are checks and balances and it's the role of a court, even a state court, to say what the law is. Um, there is a little sliver in there where they're distinguishing Bush v. Gore by basically saying that state Supreme Court decisions can be reviewed by federal courts and that if the state Supreme Court's interpretation of its own constitution is just so far outside of the bounds of reasonable interpretation, then a federal court can step in and check that. Um, but that that's not what was happening in this case. Um, and then the dissent, I believe this is Thomas, um, is basically says, look, he 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 claims that this issue was moot that the the court should not have actually been deciding this because as i mentioned before that underlying court decision had been thrown out by the new state supreme court that had reheard the case 
Yeah, so the issue of mootness, there's a number of different doctrines that limit when a federal court can examine an issue. Mootness is one of them. In other words, if there's not really, if something's moot, in other words, if the decision doesn't matter anymore, um, you know, a court will will typically not decide that issue because it's no longer a case or controversy. In other words, courts are not supposed to give sort of advisory opinions. It's fair to say that mootness is something that's brought up usually. Um, it, it, the courts uh, exercise it when they want to, and not in others. They have discretion to do so, and it, it's you know there's a lot of debate about when courts are exercising um, that discretion to, or that they, they they find that a case is moot. Let's just put it that way. One thing that I just want to make sure is clear is before we move on is just I had said earlier. I said you know traditionally this has been interpreted as you you know, you reiterated to be the state, the entire state having that power, not the state, the, the state legislature. And so people might be like, well, well then why, why even have this? Why did this change? I would think it's fair to say this is, there's a movement in the a conservative movement, federal society movement. This is like a kind of a new theory. And this bubbled up to the Supreme court. And I think um, it's fair to say that this was an example of how, even though you have a six to three conservative or right wing, whatever you want to describe it, majority in the court, that doesn't necessarily mean that every theory coming out of the federal society gets rubber stamped. Right. And I think, you know, this Moore versus Harper was also coming on the heels of a couple of other cases like the challenge to Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and uh, the Indian Child Welfare Law of 1978, both of which were trying to kind of upend decades of jurisprudence and the way that these, you know, laws had been understood. And the court did not go in the direction um, that I think, uh, in the direction of of being uh, challenged and kind of upending everything. However, that all changed <laughs> on Thursday. Indeed. Yeah. So the next case uh, was, um, this was Students for Fair Admission versus Harvard and then also UNC. Um, so these were two a pair of cases that were basically challenging affirmative action policies in each of those schools. Um, and the reason that you had two schools in, involved was that one is a state school, so it is subject to the 14th Amendment, um, Equal Protection Clause, and then Harvard, as a private institution that receives federal funds, is subject to federal legislation um, under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, um, which, you know, incorporates um, equal protection principles. Yeah, just so everyone who's listening understands, when the government deprives you of something, you have a greater you have greater due process protections and equal protection protect, protections because that's the state, that's the government acting versus just some private organization. Okay, the question is whether uh, the these schools can use race as part of an effort to create a diverse student body. And this is going back to um, several cases uh, in the past. Um, there's a case called uh, Grutter versus Bollinger in 2003, um, which basically says, yes, race can be one factor considered among many um, 
in, in order to create a diverse incoming class. Um, and interestingly, in that opinion, which was written by Justice O'Connor, and again, this is in 2003, she says something to the effect of, you know, this won't be necessary. Uh, 25 years from now, uh, because essentially we will have corrected or we will have kind of created maybe some momentum or whatever. What Harvard and UNC um, were describing is that they would, you know, be considering their admissions, um, you know, doing the these holistic reviews. Um, and I think one important piece here is that they would periodically check the overall composition of the class. Um, the overall racial diversity of the class. Um, and the court here says that as practiced by UNC and Harvard, that their actions um, violated the Equal Protection Clause. And when a court is looking at an equal protection claim based on racial classifications, which this was, they use a test called strict scrutiny. And there's a number of tests that determine whether, you know, different classifications are permissible. Um, strict scrutiny is the, you know, highest standard. And the government has a, a very high burden here. And what the government has to show is that the policy that is being used is narrowly tailored to fulfill a government, a compelling government interest. And basically what the court here says that it does not, that the way that this was being practiced at these schools doesn't survive this test. And there, there's a number of reasons why. Um, one is that the compelling interest itself of diversity, um, the court says, is it's not measurable. Like we can't really determine when that goal is achieved. And, um, you know, quotes this old case Grutter and says, you know, this was supposed to end, but it doesn't seem there's any end in sight because, you know, there's really no way of knowing like when that goal has been achieved. And then also uh, finds that this isn't really narrowly tailored. Um, the connection between the means and the ends don't seem to fit. And they, they see admissions as a zero-sum game. So if you're, you know, considering race for some people, then, you know, as a benefit, then Necessarily, other people are kind of getting kicked out as a result. Um, and so the basically this this type of affirmative action, which I think is really about using, I mean, the way I understood this was using race per se, someone's you know ident self-identification of race as um as a prox as diversity itself, um, you know the the checkbox. The the oral argument is really focused on you know are are you looking at the checkbox or are you looking at the person? Um, an important caveat here, which we can unpack in a bit, is that they don't say the consideration of race is categorically impermissible. So what Robert says is, if someone discusses their race in you know and how it impacted them and their experiences and their perspective you can consider that as a part of you know their candidacy and whether you want to admit them but you have to do that at an individualized particularized basis simply the fact that they are of a particular race cannot be enough um and so i think 
this idea of diversity in the aggregate, what they're really, I think, under undercutting and dismissing is A, that race can be a proxy for lived experience. And this is the big, I think, uh, disagreement they have with the dissent, um, which really undercuts the idea of structural racism, right? Like that some people are inherently experience mm-hmm. the world differently because of, struct- of structural disadvantages. Um, and then the second thing I think that they are dismissing is this idea that there is an inherent diversity interest in representation, Um you know, where you have like a critical mass of um, a certain group and that in and of itself is a part of uh, diversity, though I don't think that these schools argued that. I don't think they were making that claim, which I, I find puzzling, um, or at least the opinion says that they did not make that claim. Um, so uh, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Jackson also have dissenting opinions, and they basically say this is a you know, this this idea that we're a colorblind society is simply not true. Um, and what you're doing is undermining the idea, the fact that people have lived different lived experiences um, by virtue of their race. I think this is the fundamental disagreement. Yeah, I mean, I will say um, with this case, I mean, I'm pretty familiar with it. I, uh, you know, my my co clerk had was one of the lead, was the lead trial lawyer for this in this case for the on the right wing side of it. Um, so I'm very familiar with the facts of it. One thing I would just say is that the way in which Harvard put its affirmative action program into practice was not ideal. Um, it w- they created a lot of bad facts for themselves. Yeah, the lop list. Yeah, the, you want you want to yes. I mean, that's one example. The lop list. This is what I mean about that. Looking at the overall racial composition, so it looks like what they would do is go through and essentially determine whether someone was a presumptive admit or not. And you know, when they go through and they finally get to their you know like final pool, um, they have more presumptive admits than they can actually make offers to. And so what they would do at this stage is create a lop list where, like, they determine who's going to get lopped off. And um, I think the lop list was turned on uh, things like legacy status, um, athletics, you know, whether, like, maybe they're they're getting a, a point, like, a extra weight for athletics, Um I feel like there was something else, but one, and then also race. It was just the numerically quantified race. It just, they turned every candidate, and I understand they get a lot of applicants, but they turn every candidate to a number and they just assign race a number effectively throughout the. So when I read about the, about all of this as it was happening and heard about it as it was happening, I was like, wow, you could even be, you could imagine a decision. Let's just say that you had six, three. Major progressive majority. You could un, you could imagine a decision that said, "Well, affirmative action is fantastic, but the way it's implemented here is not uh, appropriate." So I, I I think that I I will just say I, the reason I'm bringing that up is because they say bad facts make bad law, and I do that that's that old saying. I do think that had something to do with this decision, but it's fair to fair to say I agree with you that it went much further than that, although. I think, and we can talk about this in the next segment, I think there's a room um, for disagreement about necessarily how far the the, the opinion goes. Um, I agree. Yeah. 
So let's turn to 303 Creative. So this is a case challenging Colorado's public accommodation law. Um, Public accommodations laws, which many states have, basically says that businesses have to serve everyone. That if you offer up a service, you can't discriminate against who you provide that that service to. Um, so restaurants can't kick people out because they just don't, you know, whatever because of you don't serve black because you're black or people, right? right? Exactly. I mean, right. um, this actually comes from things that have happened, right? So yes, lived, lived experience. experience. Yes. So um, Colorado ha- has um, this this anti discrimination law. A website designer, and we'll get into more of the facts a little bit later, uh, brought a claim saying that she wanted to start a website, wedding website design business, but she did not want to design websites that promoted same-sex marriage. And this public accommodation law would effectively compel her to do that because she would be forced to serve anyone who asked her and that this was a violation of her First Amendment right. Um, we'll get to the standing issue in a second, but basically the question is, is this law essentially compelling speech? So... The federal government, I mean, the government under the First Amendment, they can't, you know, censor you. They can't issue prior restraint, but they can't also force you to say things that you don't want to say, right? So this is the the free speech also, you know, has all of these facets. And what she's saying is this, this is a form of compelled speech. And the court agrees with her that if this law is enforced, yes, she would have to essentially create a message with which she doesn't agree. And that th- what they're saying is, this isn't really based on who's asking her to do this service. It's based on the message that she's being asked to express. And because this business has this creative, expressive component, um, she does have a First Amendment interest in this. It, it was a really weird framing because, and uh, Justice Kagan, who issues the dissent, basically calls them out and says, you know, this is a kind of a new way of approaching these public accommodation laws. Because normally, when you look at whether a law is infringing on speech, you look at what the law is doing on its face and what the intent is, right? And what she says is, this law is regulating conduct. It's trying to proscribe the act of discrimination. It's not it has nothing to do with speech. There's nothing in it about forcing people to make a message. And I think, um, you know, she goes into this idea that, um, you know, no one has to provide a message or not. It's just that if they decide to provide a message of one kind or another, like they just have to give it, they have to allow everyone to to utilize it. Yeah, I guess. I, so my understanding, this was not a facial challenge, right? This was as applied to her. Yes. And but it's weird because, well, it, it's weird because and I, I got to thinking about this because K, Justice Kagan mentions this. And I was at Yale Law School when this was going down in the 
mid 2000s um before the don't ask don't tell policy in the military was repealed um which is hard to believe that wasn't that long ago uh Military recruiters would come to the law school and other law schools to recruit for JAG. And many law schools, most law schools, have an anti-discrimination policy. In other words, they will not discriminate on the basis of, you know, race, sex, national origin. um, And they're not going to facilitate that in any way. And so... What they did was they said, listen, we, because of our anti-discrimination policies, we can't allow military recruiters to recruit on campus. And they said, you know, like, just like if there was some employer who didn't want, didn't want to hire women or didn't want to hire, you know, Asians, like we wouldn't allow them. We wouldn't include them in our process. Um, then Congress passed a law, um, an amendment. Uh, to I, some like maybe the education, the Higher Education Act or something. Uh, it's called the Solomon Amendment, and the Solomon Amendment said any school that takes federal funds has to allow military recruiters access to all of the same resources that they provide for other employers. And the law schools sued and said this is a violation of our free speech. Because what you're asking us to do is to promote, you know, these organizations, tell students about it, give them all of the same support and um, platforming and promotion that we do for these others in violation of our stated policy. And what the court says in that case is it was not a violation of the First Amendment because all the law was doing was ensuring equal access mm-hmm. to the military and even any burden on the speech was only incidental. In other words, that was not the purpose of the law. So that's, I think, the the big beef that Kagan has and, and why I think it's an interesting counterpoint that in this case, they're really looking at the impact on the individual as opposed to what the government's purpose and intent was. Yeah. I mean, a couple of thoughts on this, just from an explanatory perspective before we get to consequences. One thing I want to make sure everybody understands is this is a First Amendment case. It's a free speech case. At least that's how it's framed. That drives a lot of this. That's why you're seeing the results here. But the framing in a First Amendment case matters a lot in terms of how the court looks at it. And so one thing that's the case is expressive conduct and it, it can be something like making a cake. Um, it could be something like, I mean, one thing that's always been controversial in the laws like, you know, strip clubs, that's considered dancing is considered, you know, First Amendment expressive activity. There are lots of controversial decisions where it's like, well, if the Supreme Court's view is, hey, you know, if you have expressive activity, you need to have the right to be able to express it, however, and not be compelled, et cetera. What you know, Yale Law School, let's just say to use your example, would say, Well, hey, at our Yale Law School event, having people who are discriminating there suggests that it's forcing us to promote this activity. And I think the framing there by the court is like, Well, you're just a for, effectively a forum that right. is providing access to people to this forum. It's like the way that, let's say, Twitter is not uh, endorsing every view that's on it or your local shopping mall is not endorsing the view of everyone who's handing out placards outside. And so it's purely the way in which you look at 
um, uh, you look at it. But that, I think, is the distinction in the court, just uh, from an explanatory perspective without getting to consequences. That's, I think, how I would explain that distinction. Yes, exactly. I think this was a, a dispute about how to frame this controversy. And the majority is saying this is about pure speech. This is about this person engaging in, you know, expression um, and uh, and speech. And Kagan is saying, no, this is about conduct, not speech. And I think that's the the fundamental right. distinction. Of course, Kagan loses. So this, mm-hmm. um, we'll we'll get back to the the implications of looking at uh, you know when businesses are engaged in expressive conduct. Okay, so finally, the last one was uh, Biden versus Nebraska. Uh, this was on debt relief. Um, there was a companion case that was brought also on the student loan program by two individuals who basically claimed that they had been injured because they couldn't benefit from it. And those got thrown out by on the grounds of standing. Um, right. And and just so everyone understands what standing is, that's another one of these actions like mootness. It, it limits what courts can do. So you need to be somebody who actually has been injured in some way or impacted directly by something in order to bring a lawsuit. Yeah. And we'll come back to that issue on the LGBT case. So, uh, Biden versus Nebraska involved six states challenging the debt relief plan issued by the Secretary of Education. Loan repayments, once COVID hit, uh, had been put on hold, and this was under the Trump administration. Um, But what the Biden administration did was, uh, and, and that was done under something called the HEROES Act. The HEROES Act essentially allows the Secretary of Education to respond to a national emergency so borrowers are not worse off. And it was passed after 9-11, and the specific language authorizes the Secretary of Education to waive or modify existing loan provisions. So Biden used the authority under the HEROES Act to essentially forgive up to 20 to through the secretary of education to forgive up to $20,000 of loans um and and you know subject to whatever uh, different eligibility requirements um Mohella, which is the Missouri Higher Ed Loan Authority which services loans across the country um was not a party to the suit, but the state of Missouri was essentially bringing suit on Mohella's behalf. So there's a whole standing issue that came up here also, um, whether a state can use this private entity and, you know, bring a suit on their behalf. Court says, yes, this is an instrumentality of the state, and basically the state can kind of stand in and, and bring this lawsuit. Um, the total price tag for the Biden loan forgiveness program was uh, $400 billion. Um, And so the court says that, so this is what's called a delegation of authority by Congress to the executive branch. And the idea, you know, Congress delegates authority all the time because they can't be like legislating every single law and especially in a national emergency where things might be changing and you might need, um, you know, to act quickly. 
you you can delegate authority to the president to act and respond in, in certain ways. And what the court says is, yes, this the HEROES Act delegates authority to the Secretary of Education to waive or modify existing provisions, but this loan forgiveness scheme, which, ha, you know, is going to essentially cost the government $400 billion, goes way beyond waiving and modifying. That this essentially is creates a fundamentally new program outside of the statutory scheme contemplated by Congress. Um, essentially, they're saying that Biden was creating law. Um, and as a separation of powers issue, uh, this, this is something that Congress would need to do that even, you know, this is an appropriations issue that this should this really belongs in the House and Senate Appropriations Committee. So it's a separation of powers argument. And what they are looking at is the magnitude of what Biden was trying to do that, um, you know, they invoke something called the major questions doctrine, that this uh, is a, a decision that has vast economic and political significance. Um, and that, it, you know, it's just so big that it it's beyond the scope of what Biden had the power to do. We'll, we'll get to the implications later, but I think that adequately explains it. I mean, I'm sure one question that's going to come to our listeners is, well, why is this different than, let's say, Trump with immigration or other things, right? That where the, the federal government is, uh, the executive is making decisions, right? About the border wall or something like that. Yeah, and it's a great um, example. If you'll recall, uh, I forget what year it was. Was it 2019? Where Congress did not appropriate money to build the wall. And Trump utilized authority that was given to him um, to act in a national emergency uh, where he could um, reallocate certain military funds. And he basically declared a national emergency because of, you know, the invasion at the border or something and essentially reallocated money um, towards building the wall. And the, the question there was similar. I would say in that case, it was even more of a direct, you know, end run around Congress saying no, um, because there was an explicit rejection of his, you know, of his wall in their appropriations bill. Um, but it's this tension of delegating authority and then, you know, the president who really, the president has a term, the authority to determine when a national emergency exists um, and how to respond. Um, you know, how far can he take some of these delegated powers and what's the right balance? Um, in that case, I think there was a lot of, in the legal world, a lot of debate on whether has Congress delegated too much authority to the president? Um it, you know, in these ways that we can see how it could be abused, um, in addition to whether he had misinterpreted or he had gone too far. Uh, yeah. So let's maybe discuss all of this in a moment and talk about the implications, of all these decisions, because there's a lot to discuss. So, Asha, what do we want to talk about first? Yeah, there's a lot there. <laughs> there's a lot there. Let's um, let's just go back to the beginning and and go in order. Um, I mean, the independent state legislature theory. You know, that's a that was a big sigh of relief. I think, as you noted, this is a conservative legal theory that has come up because essentially, to the extent that you are trying to 
create election rules that allow you to win, um, it's much easier to do that if, right. you know, you have Republican-controlled legislatures that don't have any, that aren't accountable um, to to the state courts or even to their state constitutions. And maybe you can talk about how this relates to the John Eastman plan right. and January 6th. I mean, it you know, that's something that under the independent state legislature theory, which I believe that John Eastman had actually articulated in his quote-unquote legal memo, um, you know, would allow something like states to just submit an alternate slate of electors if they didn't like how an election turned out. Right. So just to be clear, the fact that Moore versus Harper was decided this way doesn't mean that shenanigans cannot occur in presidential elections. Um, and if they had decided it the wrong way, it wouldn't necessarily mean that the next election would be overturned, but it would make it more likely, make it easier to do that. And the part of the reason why is because, as you just did an excellent job of explaining, Asha, uh, earlier, you know, state governments run elections, but you know, so they have a lot of control over how, for example, their electors are apportioned. And ultimately, in the United States, our votes, my vote, Asha's vote, does, does your vote does not determine um, who runs, who becomes the president. It's ultimately the votes of electors. And how those electors are selected uh, depends in part on state law. Now, the fact of the matter is, in most states, the vast majority of states, there are actual state laws that restrict who can be an elector to you know the representatives that are um uh, that represent the candidate that won the majority of the popular vote in that state and so uh, you know if a state legislature could ignore state law and just vote for whatever they wanted to vote for the same people who were voting to disenfranchise their own members in Tennessee for example or wherever could just be like you know what like let's just make Trump are just give all of our electoral votes to Trump. You can imagine in Georgia or Arizona or Michigan or someplace like that, that happening. And so this was very consequential for the preservation of American democracy. And I think the the real question is sort of, you know, it, it's sad that we even thought that that was possible, but it's, it's, and it's a good thing that, that um, the decision went the way it did. Yeah. And just PS, Jenny Thomas is a huge, independent state legislature theory proponent. Um, and it's hard, you know. She never discusses that with her husband, uh, ever. She never discusses that with her husband. I'm sure that had nothing to do with the fact that he did not agree with taking a position on it mm -hmm. right now. There you go. Indeed, <laughs> yes. He, what he dissented on, stand, uh, what was it, uh, mootness, right? Um, so, yeah. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. So how these things go, you you know, um, conveniently, conveniently you kick, to conveniently. kick it down the road for another day, right? Mm -hmm. For another election, <laughs> maybe. Go. And by the way, can I just say that having even having it undecided, in other words, if Thomas had had his way, you can imagine if states in some coordinated fashion, you know, Republican legislatures did try to you know, in 2024, submit fake slates, and then there, you know, there's either um, a question about who really won the election. Like, at that point, it's much harder for the court to then 
arbitrate that. Like, in other words, to undo expectations or some sense that, you know, Trump really won the election again. Um, This is something that really needed to be clarified now. And so the idea of kicking it down the road is in itself, I think, deeply troubling. That's interesting. It's a very interesting comment. I hadn't considered that, Asha. So what Asha, I mean, just to unpack what you said, your point is that it's much easier to make that decision when there's nothing at stake, really, mm-hmm. okay, versus making that decision when the presidency is at stake, Bush versus Gore or whatever, or you Correct. know, Trump versus Biden, where it's like everything is at stake, depending on how we answer this question. I agree with that. Um, and I, and I just, that was why, you know, I, in the, the last segment, I kind of talked about mootness. I'll throw standing, um, you know, ripeness. There's all sorts of these doctrines that are used by courts to, to, as reasons not to make decisions. Generally speaking, my, you know, my general take is judges should do less, not more, uh, in, 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 as a general matter. And so I generally support, um, you know, the things that restrict judicial authority. But in this case, I think you're right that an argument can be made that it was very important not to have uncertainty in the law because now this decision is going to cut out at the knees a lot of efforts to engage in shenanigans, to use the word I used, in the upcoming election. Yeah, at least to engage in a certain number of shenanigans. Certain type of them. Mm-hmm. As I said, they still can happen. <laughs> so I put that disclaimer in the front end. Like, there still could be shenanigans. Yes. Yeah. And I think, like, the the facts of this case actually illustrate, I mean, you had a partisan gerrymander, and as soon as this, a Republican-dominated court assumes the bench, you know, they are fine with it. I mean, that can still happen. Um, right. But I do think that, you know, you want to have the idea of actual judicial review to still be a thing. In a democracy. Yes, indeed. 100%. <laughs> okay. So um, the affirmative action case. Um, I wrote a Twitter thread where I, you know, because I think people, I, I was seeing chirons and pundits, you know, saying affirmative action is dead. Uh, the court bars race conscious admissions. And I didn't think that was entirely accurate. And I have to say, you know, I was looking for, are they going, what I expected was, or what I was not expecting necessarily, but looking to see how far they were going to go. And you can imagine a court that said, you cannot consider race at all. You can't talk about it. You can't think about it. It can't be a factor in um, making a decision at all. And you can imagine that that would have shaped the admissions process in a very particular way. Like you would have to not have this, you know, you'd have to basically instruct applicants that they could not discuss it. Even if it was fundamental to their identity, you'd have this, you know, completely blank slate and and, um, all other, you know, uh, qualities that they can talk about, but they cannot talk about that. So, And I think there's some disagreement, but I think it's actually notable that students can talk about their individual experience. And my prediction is that you're going to see, I mean, this this is there anyway, but there are, you know, more diversity essays, um, supplemental essays. And 
I think that really the upshot is it's just going to take longer for admissions offices to review applications because they're going to have to really drill down um, person by person. They aren't going to be able to zoom back and see how the class looks, um, which means that it's going to be harder for schools to really um, look at that bigger diversity picture. you know, if you have a school that's admit, you know, that has 10,000 people, like it just becomes, you know, hard to know what you're admitting. But it does mean that it's like race is not completely off the table. I don't interpret this decision as barring race conscious admissions. It bars race conscious admissions in a particular mm-hmm. way that allowed race to be used as a proxy for diversity, race qua race to be used as a proxy for diversity, um, which, you know, incentivized schools to design their processes in a particular way, and they're going to have to now redo it. Yeah. I mean, so it's interesting. I did not read your thread probably because I couldn't read anything on Twitter this week. I mean, I got so fed up with all of the BS uh, throttling or whatever. I just gave up on Twitter this week. I didn't tweet a lot this week or try to retweets because I couldn't read anything for much of the week. Um, but it's not surprising me that you and I ended up at a similar spot. I had a very, I thought I was going to have some super hot take, but it's not all that different than yours, which is, I don't think this decision is nearly as consequential as people think it is. I think it's driven by the, some of the really bad facts in this case. And I actually think it is kind of sloppy if you care about diversity to basically try to make it so your percentage of X group is exactly the same every year. I mean, maybe depending, presumably you're going to get all different applicants every year. Maybe your percentage of, you know, whatever Latinos is going to be X one year and Y another year, and it's going to fluctuate up and down depending on the quality of the applicants in that particular pool. But the fact that they, th- there was an element which it looked a little, a little sus, uh, the way that they were doing, it was a little ham handed. And what, what the process you're describing is a way in which many businesses now engage in affirmative action. I mean, when my law firm makes hiring decisions for partners, we consider um, a person's experience and we consider um, you know, the, the message that that's going to send to ourselves and our client base. It's a, a kind of a not a it's not a numerical decision where we're like, okay, we are giving this candidate forty seven additional points because she's transgender, but you know she'd get another thirteen points if she was disabled or something like I, I think it's possible to make individualized decisions that take these things into account. It's going to like you said, be more complicated and expensive for admissions departments. So there'll be it, it will it will be more challenging for them to do, but Harvard certainly has the money to do that. Um, I think that they could just, t- you know, like you said, have essay, like essays are explicitly noted in the opinion, and Harvard made a statement after the decision, like calling out Robert's statement about that and saying that that's what they're going to do. And I just think if they do that. That I don't know how much different the outcome is going to be in, in other than, I mean, maybe to some extent, but it may be whether it's better or worse, I don't know. Yeah. I think there's two big things. One is <laughs> that the it does take out this idea of representation as an important element of diversity. I do think that that is implicit there and it's an important one because, you know, the idea is, Renato, you know, your firm's partnership could include, you know, 
many different people uh, mm-hmm. who all contribute to, you know, different elements of diversity. Um, the question is, you know, is there also a separate interest in having a certain, you know, representation of women as partners or um, underrepresented minorities as partners, you know? And I mean, th- right. that's a, that's a, a, a policy question. And, but I think that that's the one that the Supreme court is really saying, no, um, that's not, we don't consider that the aggregate, the representation, the reflection of some kind of the student body as being, you know, mirroring in some way the applicant pool or maybe even the society at large as being um, an important interest. Isn't that, I mean, in, as a practical term, I mean, you're right that I think implicitly in the language of the decision, there's a rejection of that approach. But in terms of what the decision outlaws, if it's if it's in fact the case that Harvard is going to have the same view that they the that it's important for them to have a certain representation of let's say black people of Latinos of transgender Americans of whatever all these different groups and all that's going to mean in a practical sense is instead of quantifying it they're just going to look and they're going to make wow you know Jane is got this amazing experience as somebody who's been discriminated against as an LGBTQ American, we are, you know, we really like her as opposed to saying that she's going to get some extra points. And Yeah, absolutely. Practically, I mean, practically speaking, like I said, I think it's going to increase the time and resources needed to go through the admissions process. And I think importantly, this shifts the burden of having to really articulate, you know, your own, like the impact of your racial identity in a very explicit way, Mm -hmm. which, you know, in some ways I think might cut against this idea that we should be colorblind because it's really asking students to package themselves in ways or or kind of um, like kind of think about their experience only through this lens in a way that maybe ordinarily they might not have. Mm. Maybe that also means that they aren't contributing to diversity. I don't know. Like, but my point is that they are. It is shift. It's it is burden shifting a little bit um, in terms of uh, making the case for why um, you add to diversity. And I also think importantly, this is the other thing that I mentioned in my thread: the very fact that this will end up being more explicitly articulated. And that schools will be doing this on a very case-by-case, like almost even more holistically, right? Like they have to look at it and they're going to determine like this whole package, like right. in this person's experience. We, I actually think it's going to be harder to challenge. Agreed. Like, in other words, if schools like overcorrect or decide that, okay, we really care about, you know, people's experiences with discrimination and you suddenly see like, you know, the numbers shoot up. Um, well, I, I think that it will be crazy uh, for pe- the anti-affirmative action people will go bonkers. But then what is the, what is their recourse if Harvard says, well, I don't know, we read every single application and this is what we decided was important. Yeah, that's the thing. I And, and not to spend too long in this, I know we have a couple other cases to discuss, but my reaction to this as a, as a litigator was like, man, you, you've already had multiple challenges to affirmative action. Like why you would have chosen the, the 
the approach they did is bizarre to me. Like, yeah, as a litigator, I'd be like, choose this. Uh, choose, I assume they all, already were doing what they're required by this decision because it's so much harder to challenge. And it's just, yeah. it is what it is. I mean, I think that's some, so many companies make decisions now. They, they take into account, they'll explicitly say, we are taking into account diversity. We want to have a diverse workforce. And then they'll just make an individualized decision. And what do you do about it? I mean, they could see the person's right. photo. They could see what the person's saying about themselves. And they're going to take that into account. And they're just, the, at the end of the day, they can characterize that however they want when a deposition yeah. comes. Yeah. So we'll see. I mean, I think we're, you're going to see more litigation, but, um, you know, we'll see how, how it turns out. Okay. 303 Creative. Um so there were there were t- two issues here. Number one, as I mentioned in the explanation, and this is this was known to the court that this is a pre enforcement action. This is a Correct. woman whose business had not even started. Like she had not actually created the business. She was thinking about creating a wedding right. website business, and she was worried that this law would be enforced against her, which I think already creates. Um, some standing issues, um, and maybe you have some thoughts on that. But the second issue is, is that in the last week, or not even last week, last five days, it's come out that, you know, this, the, her worry was generated by an email she got from a person who, you know, who said that they wanted her to create a website for his same-sex marriage. And now it looks like that email may have been fraudulent because the person who sent the email, um, they actually tracked him down. He's like, no, I never sent that email. So not unclear. And so I don't know. I don't know if her state of mind, if as long as she thought it was real, whether, you know, her, that that's what matters. But even so, I think there's a question of whether the fact that Colorado hadn't even tried to enforce this law yet really made this a, a ripe question. Ripeness is another thing we talked about. So, you know, in other words, you know, you can, you can, you know, for example, if you're just sitting at home and you're like, if I'm, you know, I'm transgender and I want to join the military someday, or maybe I want to do that someday, but, you know, I'm not, I've taken no affirmative steps to do that. I'm just like, you know, on my couch eating Cheetos or whatever, like, is it ripe for you to sue the military for their 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 particular policies or whatever, right? Like that's that's what ripeness is supposed to be about. Like you haven't done what you haven't put yourself into a position where that's going to be an actual what's called a case or controversy is the is the language in the constitution. So uh, I guess here's my take on it. And uh, maybe I'll be a slight sad panda on it. I mean, part of the thing that happened here is Colorado stipulated to the facts. And so I think the court was stuck with whatever, right? The court was going to just assume, I mean, Supreme Court doesn't, is not a fact. Uh, you know, they're not focused on the facts. I mean, they just take the facts that they're given and they make decisions yeah. based off of that. So I think, right. I think if you're going to find fault with anyone, find fault with the state of Colorado uh, for yeah. to stipulate to that and not doing more due diligence on the front end. I mean, one point I tried to make with the affirmative action cases, I do think that was driven in part by the facts and how all, you know, try to help people understand how the trial court stuff does impact these Supreme Court decisions. I think here it's the same thing. I mean, I think, 
Um, you could imagine, and uh, the the time to fight this, if you're Colorado, would have been on the front end, trying to color sort of the facts a certain way instead of just taking them as given and litigating the pure legal issue. Um, I also will just kind of note this is a case just like the affirmative action case in which there's sort of a right wing um, creation of uh, a particular, you know, uh, what they consider a favorable set of facts to send up to the Supreme Court. That's done in the left as well. It's been done for a long time, but these impact cases go up to the Supreme Court in part because litigants create these fact patterns that Mm -hmm. are going to potentially allow the Supreme Court to generate a result. I'm not thrilled with it, but the reality of the situation is, whether it happened this year or next year or the year after, if groups cared enough to create a fact pattern like this to get it before the Supreme Court, so unless, I don't know, a justice retired or died in the very short term, you you weren't going to see a different... This wasn't even like a 5-4 decision, so you weren't going to see a different result. Right. Uh, The other implication here is, you know, again, I saw a lot of pundits and uh, people commenting saying, you know, this, this obliterates all public accommodation laws, you know, people can throw out, you know, black people from diners again. And, uh, you know, it does not seem to me that the decision will goes that far. Um, on its face, at least the way that it's written. What it's really doing, though, it does open a Pandora's box for anyone who's engaging in um, expressive or creative activity through the course of their business uh, to then make a claim that in order to serve a person, um, they, they are being compelled to somehow support a message that they don't agree with. Where that line gets drawn, I mean, I, I think, you know, serving food to someone at Denny's is not expressive or creative. And I would hope that, you know, a court would not consider it as such. Um, but as you noted, there's a number of different types of commercial activity that is for sure, um, expressive and creative and involves speech. And, you know, that is definitely fair game. And so, again, I think uh, this is going to invite a whole host of of litigation as people are denied service in different contexts. That's right. And so, and one thing I'll just say, too, before to preface my comments on this, like, you know, I'm giving my analysis of a legal decision. Obviously, there's no question that for a lot of LGBT people who are reading this decision, they're like, this is awful. I mean, this is basically the Supreme Court saying it's great. We're okay. You it's okay to discriminate against us. And there's no I I I can't deny that. Like so I'm purely I'm giving trying to give you a sort of divorced from my own concerns about what sort of society this creates, my analysis of it. But I I so I agree, but I agree with you that if you just look at this from sort of what the impact will be is limited by that. Now, you could take it into all sorts of crazy things. There's all sorts of, like you said, there's all sorts of commercial things. I used one example that has been heavily litigated, okay, uh, earlier. But another one, you could say floral arrangements. Like there's an artistic, expressive element to creating floral arrangements. So if I say, I don't want to give create floral arrangements to gay people, is that, you know, is that, uh, or or black people or whoever, is that, 
uh, something the court's going to say it's compelled speech if you try to deny doing that. Um, yeah, that's what this opens up. Right. I mean, you know, and and not just as you just mentioned with uh, race. I mean, and this this does open the door for um, discrimination against many groups. Um, you know, not just LGBTQ. You can imagine a cake designer who says, you know, has an interracial couple and just says, well, to, for me to put, you know, the little figurines at the top of, you know, a black person and a white person like that. Like, I just disagree. I, I think people should marry in their own race, and I cannot make this cake. Um, I'm guessing that under the—I think that would—they could do that. I think that's that's at least—that uh, door is open in this decision. That's exactly For the point. Sure. Cake, cake designing is another one that, in fact, we've had a Supreme Court case out of Colorado similar with that. I think because they're trying to do this as something that they're looking for expressive activity. Because mm-hmm. they understand Supreme Court has taken a very absolutist view towards the First Amendment, which is very good at implications in certain regards. In others, there's a bit much more questionable. Um, and this is one in which I'd say activists are taking advantage of that to try to weaken uh, protection for, uh, for groups who are being discriminated against. Right. Okay, so the last one, the debt relief. Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if there's much to say except that his, you know, Biden's plan got scrapped. Um, he's trying again under a different law, the Higher Education Act, which also delegates authority to the Secretary of Education. Um, I'm not familiar with the details, but it sounds like a more incremental and long-term loan forgiveness plan, and I think it, it will take longer to implement because of various administrative requirements to implement it. Um, so, yeah, I'm not, I, I mean, I don't really, have, I, I don't have a strong view on, on I have this. a hot take. I have some hot yeah, takes Yeah, give me your one. hot take. Okay, here's, here's, so hot take number one. This is, Biden expected this and wanted it all along. And this mm. is, this is politically to advantageous. To mobilize the youth vote? Yeah. I think that this is like Biden's like wants to, right. Biden is decided he wanted to do student loans. He realized the Republicans in Congress were always going to be able to block it unless he got rid of the filibuster, which, you know, they didn't have the votes to do even if he didn't want to do it. But even if he wanted to, they didn't have the votes of the Senate to do it. So, um, you know, he, he did this knowing that the chances that the Supreme Court were going to pull this were very low. I mean, a lot of people who are more experts in this area than you and I, in terms of this, there's a lot of, there's scholars who just focus on these delegation issues and so forth, who were very skeptical of this one. And they went forward anyways. Now they're going forward again because the, in the news, what's the news that young people are getting? Biden's trying to fight to give you your student loan relief mm-hmm. and a bunch of Republicans, whether it's in Congress or the Supreme Court or against it. So he wins from that perspective. So I think he's doing, this is going basically just fine from, from where he stands. Um, and I guess, you know, to me, what I would say, my other takeaway, less of a hot take, but more of a takeaway is, you know, to me, this is just another symptom of the dysfunction that we currently have in the United States Congress and our political system, because we really aren't getting um, a lot of bipartisan um, you know, uh, compromise solutions to problems where like people in both parties are rolling up their sleeves and working together. We got a very polarized country. 
you know, the you know the Republican House is focused on investigating, you know, who Hunter Biden hooked up with five years ago or whatever they're concerned about. And so there's, you know, the, the, now the executive is trying to do more on their own. And that isn't the way that the Constitution <laughs> originally was intended. Some of that is because of the way our, our, our entire society and government and world is different than what people anticipated in 1776. And that's part of the reason why there's, you know, delegation and, you know, agencies and otherwise that, that didn't exist at the time of the founding. But part of it is just the, you know, the fact that where we have a Congress that's not doing what Congress was doing 30 or even 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah. I don't disagree. Okay. See, so I had, I, I have thoughts about that one, but I think of all of them, that was like the least surprising. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they're all, I, I thought all of the decisions were kind of along maybe what we might have expected. 303 Creative to me was the most up in the air of the group. Mm-hmm. Um, given the composition of this court, I kind of pretty much call, I think we all expected the outcomes. But I think it's very, they're very, certainly very consequential. And I think the bottom line is for people, elections matter. I was just about to say for all of these, these four decisions, we're all six, three, three and three justices who were appointed by Trump. We always hear every four years, oh, this could be the most consequential election of our lifetimes. 2016 almost certainly was. So, Renato, before we go, yesterday was your birthday. Yes. I don't know if I'm like happy about that at this stage. I, I, I don't mind birthdays, but boy, I'm, it's like I'm not getting to the point where I'm excited about getting years older at this stage. I've just turned 47. Ooh, happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Do you feel like, so I was talking about this with my friend in Italy. Um, I, I don't feel... Middle-aged, but I am. Okay. So I totally feel middle-aged. You do? I totally do. Well, I feel, I do feel a certain, like, certainly I have a very active life and a lot of vigor. And I, 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 in my mind, I'm in my 30s, even though I'm 47. Right. Okay. But even 30s are kind of middle-aged, no? 30s are not middle-aged. Okay. I'm definitely feeling older, though. I think part of it is like... And, and I'm sure well, you have the suits, like you have a house, you have kids, you know, like there's this whole like, you know, I mean, you have responsibilities yeah. and yada, yada, yada. Like there's that part of it. Yeah. I'm not like partying in the city. Um, no, no, we're not partying in the city. And, you know, the aches and pains have started and my go. vision is starting to go. <laughs> and like, um, but it's, you know, when I think about how I saw someone who was almost 50 when I was in my 30s. I was like, damn, that is old. True. And now, like, that's that's us. Yeah, that that's us. true. And so <laughs> I'm in denial about that. Like, I'm like, I don't... I've convinced myself that that 20 and 30 year olds don't see me that way, but maybe they do. I don't know. I'm just, like, trying to make myself feel better. <laughs> I think they do. I mean, I think they do. I think for me, by the way, growing a beard and having, because I have like gray hair in my beard, like I aged in terms of how I looked a lot. And I think that changed how people treated me and made me feel older. 
Like when I had a more of a baby mm. face, people treated me like I was in my 30s, even if I was in my 40s, in my mid 40s. Yeah. Um, but I do feel it a lot because I work with a lot of other lawyers and in my law firm, and I'm typically I'm all, I'm all I'm always the most senior person in any case that I work on. I don't usually I'm not working for other lawyers. I'm like I've got a, different lawyers who are working on my cases, and it's like talking to these people who just graduated from law school or five years out of law school. And it's like, well, 20 years ago, we did things this way when I was practicing law. And it's just just having these conversations makes you feel super old because it's like, hey, you know, well, you know, we didn't, you know, research things this way or do things this way or the courts used to be this way or that way or whatever. It's just, it, it's a very different world. And it makes it, it on, a, on a daily basis, it's definitely making me feel my age. Well, happy birthday to you, you. And I hope you had a lot of fun celebrating. We did. Indian food for dinner, actually. That was my choice. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. M-S-W-Media.